welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. Hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you again for coming back to the podcast, The Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I have the pleasure of having Lily Robbins-Brock, um, a local author from my area on the podcast. So Lily, why don't you say hi to everyone? Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. So Lily, everybody knows kind of the answer to this question if they listen closely to what I just said, but what state in the Pacific Northwest do you live in? I am in the gorgeous state of Washington. No, it is gorgeous. Born and raised. <laughs> oh, fantastic. It certainly has been gorgeous the last couple of days, except a little hot for us. So we're right in the middle of July. Right. I, I'm, I'm not a heat person. <laughs> so, you know, I thought I was until we moved into our newer home. And uh, our newer home's older on the old west side. And it doesn't have the AC unit in. Now I've discovered I'm not a heat person. <laughs> that would do it. <laughs> very, very miserable. <laughs> but we're working on that. So, so Lily... Um, if I, I think I read this somewhere when I was doing some research, but I'm curious, you, you no longer have a day job. You're retired, correct, from what you had done in the past? I, I would say about 98% retired. I still oh. have some clients that I, that I just couldn't abandon. Oh, okay. So we'll tell the and, listeners uh, what you do for a living because I, I love Okay. <laughs> I, well, I started my own business. I'm an entrepreneur, and I started the business in 1980. Um, ironically, I had just given birth to our second child with a C-section, yeah. and but the place where I had worked um, went bankrupt, and um, previously I had been a legal secretary, and there was no way I was going back to that, yeah. so I, I uh, told my husband I'm starting my own business. I know I can do it, so that was in 1980, and yeah. um, here we are, 2018, and I'm just uh, recently, like I said, 98% retired. So, so I ended up buying my commercial property, and, and it was a success. Oh, fantastic. So, Lily, what was the business that you started? Interior design. Oh. I was an interior designer. Geez, I should have had you and, come over and help me when I started working on our little craftsman home. <laughs> uh, well, for a while, yeah, that was going pretty well, and then we hit those hard times uh, yes. in the 80s, and I decided I needed to be diversified. So I also became a general contractor and oh, uh, specialized you. in remodeling, had my own subs. And, and in fact, I used many of them when we uh, transplanted here from Olympia to Kath Lamont and built our home. And many of my subs were uh, willing to come here and work on the home. And that was about three years ago. So oh, I haven't goodness. been here too long. That's so super right. cool that you were, as a female, a contractor, a general contractor. I think that's just absolutely fantastic. <laughs> yes, it's it's kind of rare. <laughs> At first, I had to um, put up with the men saying, would you like me to get that measuring tape out of your hand and measure for you? And I, I said... No, unless you want to be accountable for any mistakes. <laughs> that oh, took care of that. So I love it. I absolutely love it. It's the one thing that um, I think is awesome. So my husband's in industrial construction, and he works out of Seattle for huge companies. 
And, um, but he always, him and I always have worked on projects together. I'm not saying I'm the best at it, but I have no problem with a tape measure power tool of any kind. Well, saws kind of make me nervous, Uh Um, but we've done quite a bit together. And I just think it's awesome that you were, you did that. That's fantastic. Plus you have My husband and I work together as well. In fact, on this house, I took it up to the frame stage with the builder and then I took over it from that point with my subs and my husband and I doing the labor. Good for you. Yeah. You know, and you have to be a great communicator if you're going to work with subcontractors too, because you've got to keep all that going, right? (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah. You know, being a woman, I had to word things just the perfect way, (laughs) but they were wonderful and they, and I did gain their respect and that was very important. Well, I learned something absolutely fantastic about you. I knew you were an interior designer. I had no idea about that other, the construction part of it. So bravo. I'm so glad that you shared that with us. Um, so, so share with us. Um, I always ask this. It's my stumper question. So if you're stumped a little bit, that's okay. And I bring it out right out front. But for new listeners that will potentially be new readers for you, Lily, tell us one thing that you would like them to know about you up front. I am definitely heavily involved into genealogy. My family, uh, like I mentioned, I was, I was born and raised in Olympia, and uh, that is uh, the pioneer land there of, of many of my ancestors. And so I've been studying that quite a bit. And uh, in fact, it's what led me into discovering a journal by one of the pioneer families, not one of my family. I know I'm getting sidetracked here a little bit. That's okay. We'll bring it back around. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But uh, the journal uh, talked about a uh, family that came from the East Coast to Olympia. And instead of coming on the Oregon Trail, which everybody is familiar with, they um, came um, the water route, the South American route on a uh, paddle wheel steamship. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I've never known about that. And I bet a lot of other people don't. So I spent about four months researching that subject. And with the journal, with her timeline of their journey, I was able to uh, start my novel. And I decided that's what my novel is going to be around, a, a fictional family in the 1850s coming to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, my goodness. So many things that I love. Um, so you you don't know this about me because we haven't actually – personally met we've seen each other I think around some of the writer groups in the area Um, but I'm working on historical fiction that's what I love to read so that's what my my whole purpose of this podcast ended up being asking a lot of authors about their journey of writing to help inspire me as I'm working on my first book and um, so historical fiction is really my thing and I have an idea for a story in the local area where we're at too eventually Um, so you're a kindred spirit. So when you find some, a good story like that, you kind of got to jump with it, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. In fact, it's grown so much. I, I well, I'll talk about a detour a little bit later here, probably, oh, but we can detour um, let's, let's do that. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> this, uh, this turned, it's going to be in turning into a trilogy. I'm at 130,000 words so far. And um, there's so much when you find, when you are doing this research, which is incredible. I, I could just devour it. Mm-hmm. I come home with stacks of books and I'm on the internet and, and sometimes the, this um, pieces of history will lead you 
uh, with an idea that mm-hmm. you can incorporate into your story. So the story continues to grow. But so I thought I was good. This was going to be my first book. I have always wanted to to um, be an author, but had to earn a living. Yes. <laughs> and yes. Um, so finally, now that um, I'm nearly retired and we've moved here to this beautiful area, we're, we're on the Columbia River here in Kathlamet. Oh, it's wonderful. serene and it's it's the perfect writer's haven. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, beginning my writing career. Mm-hmm. And I started to think that I was going to get back to my novel. And uh, one day uh, I was unpacking some boxes that we'd put aside and I came across some letters written by my dad on the um, World War II battlefront. And I had seen them about a 30 years ago and had forgotten about them. He died in 1994, so he'd been gone a while. But I, he, like many World War II veterans, they don't like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so dad didn't either, but there were some stories. And so it inspired me. And I suppose this could go along with what readers might like to know about me. I thought I'm going to go out and find a, a living World War II veteran. And so that's what I did. And I mm-hmm. found one uh, right here in Longview mm-hmm. and uh, Maury Hooper. And he was just wonderful. So I wrote the first book about him. Mm-hmm. And I found that I, I love to educate people in the process. So what I will do is incorporate historical notes around the timeline. And I did that around his life story. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be his life story versus just in the uh, uh, war. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just meant so much to him. He was 92 when I met him. And you learn their life and you become then part of their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that that, so, that brings us to what your titles are, Lily. So I was, you know, just cruising around your website, and I'll make sure what your website is available for listeners. Um, tell us what your titles are that are published. And yeah, so that that was the first uh, book. I before that I did a um, a recipe book just to learn the process of self-publishing mm-hmm. and that's also on Amazon hundred recipes. I, saw um, I was excited and, about it actually. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, all about turning food into gifts mm-hmm. and because I've always done that, I'm getting sidetracked here again, but the <laughs> book then with Maury, uh, since he was a PT sailor, uh, the book is called wooden boats and iron men, a world war II sailors life story and his passion to help save one of the last surviving PT boats. And so he was that the book, uh, the boat on the cover, the picture of the boat is the actual boat that he was involved with. Oh, and that's awesome. sitting at Swan Island in Portland for, for anyone who wants to go for a tour. And uh, in fact, he and I ended up on the boat together. And there's a picture of he and I on the on the boat. And uh, he it was like he turned into that 18 year old sailor. He knew that place frontwards and backwards. And he was climbing little straight up and down ladders much better than I was. That's amazing. And yeah, it was amazing. The sad thing is I, I knew his health was failing, and that's the risk you take when you're working with an older person. And I really pushed to get that book out, and um, I did three weeks before he passed. But oh. his last days were jubilant. <laughs> oh, oh and really, that just gave me goosebumps. I love that. I'm so glad you got it out. It was wonderful. I, I, I presented it to him in front of about 100 people, people oh. that cared about him. Awesome. It was in uh, the Longview Daily News, and 
Um, yeah, it was great. And, and then the second book is called Ever a Soldier because word got around what I was doing. Yes. And I was asked <laughs> to do a second story. And at the time, I didn't know that he lived in Salem, Oregon. Uh, when I accepted the project, his daughter had contacted me who lived in Olympia. So I, mm-hmm. I assumed he was in Olympia. <laughs> and so, uh, but that worked out okay. My daughter lives in Eugene and I just wove in the, the visits uh, mm-hmm. to go see him. He was 99 years old when I oh, met him. Wow. And he was on the European front and quite a character, sharp as a tack, a bit of a flirt still. And um, <laughs> just had quite a variety and that book's called Ever a Soldier, Reflections of a Veteran from Horse Cavalryman to World War II to Vietnam. Wow. So you can tell by the subtitle that he had quite a span in his life. Really? And so I told his story. Mm-hmm. And I have a wonderful picture of him and his dog oh, yes. <laughs> at, at the retirement home. And I was fortunate to, um, last July, he turned 100 years old. And my husband and I attended his birthday party. And he's still living. What an so awesome honor. <laughs> and, and then the third book, which I'm going to read from today, is Victory on the Home Front, mm-hmm. a World War II story. While her husband fought, she built planes. She was a Rosie the Riveter. Oh, and scary. once again, word got around of what I was doing, mm-hmm. and I was asked to do her story. And so I have done her story. And I won't talk too much about it because okay. I will read the prologue, yeah. and that will explain a little more on that one. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. So do you believe that you're going to continue this as stories come to you? Are you in the open mind to Um, continue? If only I could clone myself because Mm -hmm. there are other people that would like it, but it takes a lot out of you. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot of emotional energy because you do worry about their health and getting it done on time. And Mm -hmm. I've done three and -hmm. it doesn't mean I won't do any more, but I'm ready to to get back to my novel. Exactly. yeah. And finish that and uh, create my own little world. And yeah. I miss yeah. my characters terribly. And oh, probably other writers can relate to this. Yes, yeah. So let me ask you one more question about the writing process, working with somebody that is a live firsthand account. Because I find that very fascinating. So I'm a librarian by trade. So um, by background in trade. And so that is like the best way to do research is to get your firsthand accounts by people that were living during that time. Did you yes. interviews, Lily, did you um, use an audio recorder? Were you taking handwritten notes or did you do both? Because I find that I did both. fascinating. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, I, I did both. And in fact, with Maury, uh, he wanted a copy of the tape. And mm-hmm. so that was part of my gift. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said to the group, uh, I, I, the little thumb drive and a little velvet pouch as I handed it over, this is uh, Maury's story in first person. And then as I handed the book and I said, here's Maury's uh, story in third person. <laughs> yes. Oh, what, what a wonderful honor. Thank you for sharing that with us because I'm, I'm doing this podcast for aspiring authors and other authors. It's so great to hear the process and that it is an emotional um, adventure and journey when you're doing firsthand account. Yeah. And I feel like I'm giving back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because I, I didn't do it for the money. It's, no. it's to give back. Yeah. And there's so many, I had another author on my um, podcast a while ago and she does aviation history. Um, and we, her and I were talking and cause she is doing a, 
or has an idea of working on a book with aviation, um, military aviation stories like what you've done. Um, and we were talking about how those stories are going to be gone if we don't try to capture They are going to be gone. And it's important yes. for us to try to capture as much as we can. So, Yeah, I've gone on book tours with these books and people love to hear about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, yeah. I always tell them, at least get their words on tape. Yeah, it could exactly. always be transcribed later. Yes, yes, do it then. So let's talk a little bit about your self-publishing journey. Because um, I am in all of my interviews on the podcast. I keep going back between self-publication to traditional route. I know the traditional route is very challenging. Um, so why did you choose self-publishing? And give us a little background about how that went for you. Sure. Well, when I retired and I knew that I was going to start writing, uh, and I'm a self-starter, I'm a hands-on, I started mm-hmm. my own business, okay. so that was already influencing me, most likely, to go towards self-publishing, yeah, yeah. but I did, I did research it and did the pros and cons on each, mm-hmm. and, and I am a very hands-on person, and I chose self-publishing. For instance, if I, with these last books that I did, worrying about getting the books to them while they were still alive, I don't think that could have yeah. happened mm-hmm. if I wasn't in control. Very so <laughs> um, I've enjoyed that. Of course, mm-hmm. I knew nothing. And what I, the reason I created the recipe book, even though I had the novel started, I decided I learned about a self-publishing school. Oh. And so your listeners might be interested in this. Yes. And um, it, uh, it's, called, it's called self-publishing school. Okay. Uh, Chandler uh, mm-hmm. is the, the owner. And uh, I wondered if it was a scam, and I started oh, yes. Googling and everything, and cause it was $600, so yeah, it's very that awesome. was a lot mm-hmm. to shell out, And um, but the, it was good. Uh, you joined the private Facebook group, and just like you have yours, and so the, everybody interacts with each other and helps each other, but mm-hmm. he takes you through all the different steps, and mm-hmm. so I thought I was going to use my novel on that, and I realized it was way too long. Mm-hmm. And so I had to come up with something quick. And that's why I wrote a recipe book. Mm-hmm. I am not known for cooking. So <laughs> everybody that, that knows me, <laughs> Lily did what? <laughs> but I'm quite proud of it. <laughs> oh, I think that's very good. <laughs> so we'll make sure that in the show notes, um, we'll look up. If you don't have the link, I'll find that link for that self-publishing school because I find that interesting. And here's the reason why is because as anybody that's researching being an author at this time of the world, there's plenty of resources out there that are for payment. It's nice to get an author on that's gone through one and, and has kind of tested it out. Yes, um, because there are those that are unscrupulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you feel like the the lessons that you learned with that school was worth the amount of money and, and how much time? I do. Um, well, they keep you on a timeline, so you have to commit your time. It's just like being in school. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it was a little bit intimidating because I'm not real techie with the computer. Mm-hmm. You probably oh, saw with all the emails I kept sending stuff. you with questions. You've been doing great. Uh, Your first podcast <laughs> recording, I think, right? So you've done great so far. Oh, yes. This is the first. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so um, after the school was finished, I felt confident then to go on and then I started these three books the uh, which I hadn't planned but there they were they mm-hmm. um, 
opportunity knocking on the door to tell me to do this. And, mm-hmm. and so um, I was, and because of the school, I was able to go right through those steps that I learned mm-hmm. and get those books out timely. Fantastic. And uh, so now I'm on to the, the long novel then, mm-hmm. uh, but I will know what to do. And mm-hmm. um, I work closely. I, Amazon, they encourage you to work with Amazon, which I, all my books are on Amazon. And then the, I don't know if your listeners know about Create Space. Yes. Most um, of them have heard about it so far if they weren't familiar okay. with it yet. <laughs> That's where I get my print books. And gotcha. I highly recommend doing both. Mm-hmm. And my print books have been selling, outselling my eBooks, mm. which I thought would have been the opposite. Mm. Yeah. And do you think that's because people you're seeing people face to face and selling them, or is it because maybe the generation that's reading them would prefer print books? That both of those, and a lot of people say, I just want to hold the book in my hand, mm-hmm. and also the fact that it's a signed copy means a lot to them. It really does. Definitely. So my uh, listeners, um, if anybody joins my newsletter to keep on top of the podcast and what I'm doing, um, I get signed copies of authors that have been on the podcast and I give those as freebies and as a drawing. Once oh. a month. And it has been, well, I'll, I'll be able to contribute. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you later when we're not recording how to do that. So if listeners, this is your first time hearing this, um, almost every one of the authors that have um, been on the podcast have donated a signed copy of the book. And the, there's, you'll have to sign up once to the newsletter and you're entered in the drawing every month. So it's pretty cool. And I'll send it out to you if you're the winner. Um, but I have enjoyed that part of it too, as far as the signed copies are so fantastic. And then luckily for me, many of the authors will send me a double copy. So I get my own. So I've been able to read them. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> you you know, deserve that. <laughs> that I get, right. So, um, so Lily, let me ask you this question and it kind of dovetails off of that um, self-publishing school. So it's two part question. Did the self-publishing school after you were done, did, do they keep you involved with support like through the Facebook page and offer continued support afterwards? Um, well, what the one um, thing that I, most of us didn't like was that we were charged $48 a month to be on that Facebook page. Oh. And I just couldn't justify it. And we all decided to stick together and go out and create our own group pages for free. No, that's really smart. But I do understand from the um, creator of the school side of it, it's a lot of work to maintain large groups. And mean, you know, so I get that part of it, I guess that he's, you know, when he, if he goes in and right. questions, it, he's getting, and I did it for about a year. Yeah. 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 So you donated your time. <laughs> you were good. Right. I did. Right. So, okay. That's interesting. So let's dovetail off of that question a little bit more. What about support groups and associations that you are involved with? Because I like to get an idea of what authors are doing. And if I can find those resources, if they haven't already been mentioned, I add those to show notes. So when aspiring authors are listening to this, they might hear something they didn't know about and go find it themselves. Sure. Well, you, of course, you know about WordFest in, yes. in Longview. Yes. So I, I am a member of that. Never met you at the time that I saw you, but this next time around, I'll make sure I come and introduce myself to you. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. And so that's the one that, uh, one of the physical ways. And then online, uh, there are many uh, opportunities, but the one group that I have stuck with 
because it's such a time commitment. If you're, if you have yourself spread around too much, as if most people know when they yes. get onto Facebook. Yes. Uh, but this particular group is called One Stop Fiction. Oh, nice. And it's people all over the world. In fact, I think there are more people out of the country in, in that group than in, than from the States, but wonderful group of people. So because of all the variety of where they live, you get different viewpoints and we're very supportive of each other mm-hmm. and the group has grown. And so there's different services offered through the group. We have a Rolodex of uh, services available, like an editor, you know, where oh. other members have used that editor, so you know mm-hmm. they're tried and true. Uh, book cover designers. Oh. Uh, if you need a beta ra- reader, you say, I need a beta reader. Or okay. if you uh, want to have a launch team, um, I'm ready for my book to, to launch. Who oh. can be on my team? And, Very nice. And, uh, and right now they're doing reviews. So my book, My Victory on the Home Front, is has been reviewed. I haven't seen the review yet, but these reviews aren't the ones that go on Amazon. They're real uh, solid reviews that will tell you exactly what they think. Uh-huh. And, yeah. Well, that's, and offer, that's what we need. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you don't want all these yes people out there yes, exactly. and, and then make a fool of yourself. Yep, exactly. um, yep. So it's a great group. And so that's the one I've concentrated on. And then the other one that I really love I have found that libraries are a great source mm-hmm. to go speak at. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I started out at the Longview Library, then Kath Lamont asked me. Next thing I know, I'm all the way to South Bend and Raymond and uh, to right down the line at these libraries. But mm-hmm. I love speaking to the people in person. Yes. I absolutely love it. Yes, libraries are my home. You know, I, I worked at the Longview Public Library for over a year while I was working on my master's as a librarian. And so I got a dual master's library and in information technology. And then LCC lured me back over to the other side of the, the street. So anybody that doesn't know my area, our library was, is right across from the college. <laughs> so, so then I started out on my higher ed career from that, but <clears throat> love libraries. Libraries are incredibly supportive. And I talk to um, self-published authors all the time about marketing yourself and getting yourself out there so readers can find you. And I think many forget how valuable of a resource libraries can be for reading. Yeah. And I don't, and I, uh, they, I, if they don't buy the book, I donate the book. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they insist on buying the book, but uh, like Longview, yeah. I donated uh, the book. So smart, Ollie. I love it. I love it. Great resources. <laughs> I'll make sure the ones that are online are available so that people are listening and go to the show notes. So that would be wonderful. I'm really interested in the one-stop fiction. I'm going to go look at them right away. I think that sounds like a really fabulous online group. Um, but I am the one that has spread myself thin <laughs> right now. So. <laughs> it sounds I, like it from what you I told know, me. <laughs> you know, working full time, doing the podcast, trying to do some writing. We just moved. You know, this summer has been quite exciting, but it's all good. <laughs> you're you're a multitasker. I am. And sometimes you know how that goes. It doesn't mean you're doing it all well. <laughs> you're just... <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so. the, the one thing I have found with the writing when I was seriously trying to get these books finished is my poor house just mm-hmm. just went downhill. Yeah. <laughs> Dust yeah. was an inch thick. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, there's definitely, I would much rather be writing than doing housework any day. That is yeah. a total motto in my life. <laughs> and then the, and then there's the weight gain problem as well. Yeah, yeah. So well, make sure I, you keep moving around. <laughs> I do. I work from home. So I've been working from home for seven years. So that was a big challenge at the beginning. And so now I have a very strict routine. I do go to the gym early in the morning. I take my dogs for a walk when I can in the day. And then I, I have a stand-up desk. So a lot of people that don't realize, even for authors, it's really smart to look at getting a stand-up desk to work some of your writing in. So you're Yes, it is. Um, and so I, I'm on the path of healthiness as a writer slash working from home individual. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely had that weight gain the first year working from home. It was a challenge. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's an eye-opener. <laughs> it is, it is. So why don't we set up Lily for your reading? Um, I think you already shared the title with us, but go ahead and share it again so that anybody that might have not heard that and then give us a little bit of background. I'm going to go quiet while you do that and listen myself. All right. Very good. Thank you. Um, as I mentioned, uh, this, uh, this was my third book, uh, Working with the Greatest Generation, Victory on the Homefront, a World War II story. While her husband fought, she built planes. She was a Rosie the Riveter. And... Uh, with each of these people, I've done something special with them. Uh, Maury, with, we were on the PT boat, and um, Philip and Ever a Soldier, I went to a 100th birthday party. Well, with Penny, her, her actual name was Priscilla, but she was nicknamed Penny. Uh, her daughter and I took her on a road trip back home uh, to Aloha, Washington. I had never known about Aloha, Washington, but it's on the Olympic Peninsula uh, right next door to Moclips. And so the uh, Moclips and Aloha were her hangouts, but she had not been there since 1940. So we took her there. And um, of course, it was great for me for the research part of it, too. So that was very, very special. I ended up there later for a book signing with her there, too. But I'm going to start out, so I just wanted to uh, mention that. And this book was published in 2017, uh, last year. So as I'm speaking, uh, I'm going to read from the prologue, which is first person. So I'm speaking like it's 2017. So I will begin. As a baby boomer, I've always felt a strong connection to the greatest generation. My parents were part of that generation. My dad served in World War II, and shortly after he returned from the war, he met my mother. They married in June 1947, and in March 1948, boom, I was born. I often teased my mother and said, Mom, I did the math. I must have been a honeymoon baby. She replied in a very serious tone. Of course, don't think for a moment that anything happened before we were married. Both my parents are gone now, <clears throat> and I miss them terribly. There are still people from the greatest generation living among us, and their stories need to be told. I think of these people as treasures. I've recently written two life story books thus far, Wooden Boats and Iron Man and Ever a Soldier. As I've gone on book tours with these books, I've met many people who have a loved one from that generation. They always tell me, nothing has been written down. I emphatically encourage them to at least use a tape recorder to get their loved one's words on tape. Their words can always be transcribed into a story later. Once these treasured people are gone, their stories go with them forever. The idea of writing about a Rosie the River actually peaked in October of 2012 
while I was on a genealogy mission. I wanted to become a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. To qualify, I needed hard evidence of my direct family connection to each past generation leading to my patriot who served in the Revolutionary War. I had already spent countless hours breaking through a brick wall of my great-grandfather on my dad's side. Through hours of detective work, I discovered our family had important roots in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and it was where I would find the answers I needed. No one in the family had ever known about Ypsilanti. Off I flew to Ypsilanti. I donned my detective hat and spent 10 days uncovering information which had been buried for decades. Ipsy, the affectionate name used by the locals, is a small town, so I spent much of my time on foot, literally walking in my ancestors' footsteps. Many of the historic buildings that line the streets of Ipsy have been there since the 1800s. I even tracked down the address of my great uncle's business, which had been in one of the commercial buildings. As I walked through the town and the residential neighborhoods, I thought, if only these old buildings could talk. I found the stately old church my ancestors had attended, and I visualized them walking up the steps and entering the building through the massive carved doors. There were out areas outside of town I needed to explore as well, so I rented a car. On one particular day, I ventured out to the rural area and found my great-great-grandfather's farm. After feeling quite successful with my find, I proceeded to head back to town, but took the wrong road and got lost. In those days, I didn't have a smartphone, thus no navigation. I ended up on a potholed, semi-paved road with grass growing through the cracks, which led me to an old vacant factory building. It sat eerily quiet, and it was black as night inside. Daylight was fading, and there weren't any streetlights. I shined my headlights toward the building and saw a faded sign near it, which read, Willow Run Factory. I knew I had discovered something important from the past, and I had to know more. After finally finding my way back to town in the dark, I was most anxious to return to the hotel and ask some questions. I learned that the factory had been built by the Ford Motor Company to, fill, to fulfill the need to build the B-24 plane, known as the Liberator, for World War II. That night in my room, I stayed up for hours researching the Willow Run factory on my laptop. The factory began production in 1942. Using Henry Ford's mass production technology, the factory produced one B-24 every 55 minutes. 42,000 people worked at the factory, and one-third of them were women. It was at Willow Run where the original Rosie the Riveter icon began. Somehow, I felt a connection to the lonely, abandoned factory, Maybe it was because I had come to know Ipsy so intimately. By now, I felt qualified to refer to the town as Ipsy. I had even met five long-lost cousins who lived there. One cousin was 95 years old. Maybe some of my family had worked in the factory. Maybe it was because my father was a World War II veteran. All I knew was that I was drawn to it. Tears came to my eyes when I learned the factory was doomed to the wrecking ball the following year, 2013. I went back to look at the factory one last time before leaving Ipsy. In my mind, the spirit of all the Rosie, the Riveters lingered in the building. I told myself that one day I must write about a Rosie the Riveter. Fortunately, there were people, including myself, who didn't want to see the demise of this historic relic. 
As scheduled, the demolition process began in the fall of 2013 and continued into 2014. In an effort to save a portion of the plant that was still standing, the Michigan Aerospace Foundation and the Yankee Air Museum formed Save the Willow Run Bomber Plant campaign. Their goal was to raise $8 million to buy 144,000 square feet of the bomber plant before the deadline of May 1, 2014. The campaign became known as Save Rosie's Factory and was in commemoration of the women who contributed to the World War II effort. They achieved their goal. I'm proud to admit that I donated to this cause. I've kept tabs on this project. At the moment, it's projected that by early next year, 2018, the restored and renovated bomber plant will become the National Museum of Aviation and Technology at historic Willow Run. Five years later, 2017, I met Priscilla Messenger, an actual Rosie the Riveter who lives in Kelso, Washington, just a few miles away from me. Now I'm writing her story. The story has expanded, however. As Priscilla talked about her life, I learned about her husband, Dean. He was a World War II veteran, a fighting CB. How could I write about her and not write about him? This is no longer a story solely about a Rosie the Riveter, but the story of a young married couple separated by World War II. So many marriages were put on hold. As husbands fought overseas, wives built the machines they needed to win the war. And as a little quote here I've added, we are our stories. We tell them to stay alive or keep alive those who only live now in the telling by Niall Williams, History of the Rain. And now I'm going to read a little bit about Priscilla and Dean. This is in chapter one. And there's a quote from Franklin Roosevelt. There is one front and one battle where everyone in the United States, every man, woman, and child is in action and will be privileged to remain in action throughout this war. That front is right here at home in our daily tasks. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, April 28, 1942. Priscilla and Dean were married just over a year when the Japanese Empire attacked Pearl Harbor on Sunday, December 7, 1941. Their life was about to change. The war had been raging in Europe since 1939. President Roosevelt tried to avoid involving the United States in the war and even promised the American people he wouldn't send their loved ones off to fight. His promise was snatched away when the Japanese engaged in the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor on that infamous day, killing 2,403 Americans and wounding another 1,178. On December 11th, Hitler and Nazi Germany declared war on the United States, and on the same day, the United States declared war on Germany and Italy. The newlyweds knew it was only a matter of time before Dean would be called to serve, at the time, men between the ages of 18 and 35 were drafted. Many men felt compelled to volunteer to defend their country. A year and a half later, Dean joined the Navy and applied to train for a new kind of soldier, a CB. And there's a little quote here that I'm going to add. There's um, quite a bit of description I've given. I started doing research on the CBs. Uh, this is a quote from the U.S. Navy CB Museum. We were insurance men, grocers, welders, merchants, accountants, architects, bakers, butchers, brick masons, mailmen, machinists, dining car stewards, teachers, salesmen. We came from the north and from the south, and more than one-third of us were from the metropolitan areas of Illinois, New York, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. 
Dean was among the first to join the CBs. He had worked for a construction company in Longview, Washington, and on July 1943, his boss sent a letter of recommendation to the U.S. Navy Construction Battalion Recruiting Office. Dean was accepted and inducted on July 27, 1943, with a date of entry as August 4th of the 130th Battalion, Company D, 5th Platoon. The battalion was official the following month, and Dean was ready to start training. His battalion would be attached to the 4th Division Marine Corps. The month of August began with Priscilla and Dean standing in the train station. Like so many other emotional couples gathered there, oblivious to those around them, they clung to each other up to the final moment until the train whistle signaled the hour of departure. The station was crowded with couples saying farewell. It was a tearful scene. I was sad and crying, but I was trying not to make it harder for him, said Priscilla. The heartache of wartime goodbyes was a common theme. A soldier comforted his girl as she wept. He dabbed her tears with his handkerchief and pulled her in close, with her chin resting on his shoulder. Other couples clenched hands and chattered nervously about their plans when they would be together again, each ignoring the possibility he may not return, and this could be their final goodbye. After one last embrace, Dean and the other warriors boarded the train. While the train chugged slowly, then faster, out of the station, some soldiers hung out the windows with eyes locked on the ones they were leaving behind. Their tear-filled eyes said it all, sadness, fear, and tender love. When the train picked up speed, some of those left behind ran alongside the train to wave as long as possible. Once the train was out of view, the silence in the train station was deafening and the wives, sweethearts, mothers, family members, and friends reluctantly left the station to try to resume their lives. As she watched her husband leave, Priscilla realized she was suddenly a single mother of a five-month-old baby. She was on her own, and she didn't know for how long. As a wife and mother, she was forced to put her married life on hold until most likely the end of the war. How long would this war last? She chose to ignore the question lurking in the deepest recess of her mind. Will he come back? Life was going to be different now. After Priscilla left the train station, she drove to the home of her brother and sister-in-law to pick up her baby girl, Carol Ann. They had volunteered to care for her while Priscilla was seeing Dean off. For the first time, it was just her and Carol Ann. When they arrived home, Priscilla opened the door to a quiet and empty house. She wouldn't be cooking dinner for her and Dean that night. She wouldn't be enjoying conversation with him over a cup of coffee the following morning and several mornings thereafter. How many mornings would she drink coffee alone? When she opened the closet door, his clothes hung, his clothes hung idle, all neatly lined up as he had left them, and his scent still lingered in the air. She thought about how Dean would miss all the firsts of their baby girl. She had promised to write him daily and to send pictures. He promised to do the same if he could. So uh, I can end at this point in uh, wow. respect of the time. <laughs> I, I am just absolutely, I have goosebumps, Lily, because not only did you capture the history so well and you have the future um, in that, but it's right in our area, the area I grew up in. And I absolutely pictured 
the train station. <laughs> and oh, that's know, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so beautiful reading. I I really need to read the rest of this book. <laughs> so I will be. Oh, thank you. Copy. So thank you. Some of that is a little creative writing because uh, Penny couldn't remember everything. She's ninety five, so yes. I just filled in a few little well, <laughs> fictional. That's, that's the nice things that we get to do, right? We know this is historical fiction, but it's based on you know, first account, which makes it much stronger than when we're doing some research. <laughs> so. Right. And what they call it in nonfiction is creative writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. The creative writing. Fantastic. So before we let you go, Lily, I did get a tip from someone that we have a mutual friend in that, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, your husband is also a writer as well? Yes, he is. Yeah. Yes. And it was on World War II as well. Oh, heavens. Does, uh, does he have yeah. a book published and he's, he, or is he working towards one? Oh, it's published. It's and it's a lar- It's a novel for sure. Well, and um, it's called Silk Silk Cocoon. <laughs> okay. And uh, my daughter has done all our covers. It's a beautiful cover. It's on yeah. Amazon. Okay. And uh, I don't know if anybody knows about Kindle Unlimited, mm-hmm. but I have his book listed under my account under Kindle Unlimited, as well as mine. Mm-hmm. And on his book. Uh, it tells how many pages are being read by people that yes. pay for that membership. Mm-hmm. I think we put his book out four months ago, I believe. It has been nonstop, three oh. to 4,000 pages read a oh. month. Wow, that's fantastic. And yeah, people that do read it say they cannot put it down. And his book is, for as big as it is, it's a good buy. It's $13 <laughs> and mine well, are 10 Well, fantastic. So. Well, listeners can go and find his book before I... I wrangle him on the podcast, so <laughs> we'll have to bring him on the podcast here. Get an appointment so we can get him on. And uh, so Yeah, he's one of my best editors, too. <laughs> fantastic. Well, we'll definitely work on that together off the podcast. You and I will wrangle him in for an interview. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. <laughs> wonderful talent. Thank you, Lily, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Listeners, you love her book. Go, go to her website, get her books. When you get done reading them, write a review. And Lily will definitely work on getting your husband on so that listeners can read, hear about him as well. That sounds good. And I want to thank you for this opportunity. And thank you, listeners, for listening to me. Yes, we're so happy that you're here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? Visit us at our website to learn more. You can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter 